the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. What makes up a democracy and how do you know when you're losing that democracy? I think a lot of us are asking those kinds of questions these days as we watch so many of our democratic institutions fade under attack. Professor of Journalism and Media Studies says the test of our democracy may not be what we think and that we may be thinking too narrowly about what matters and what keeps us free. We're going to discuss it next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Look around, and you'll find a democracy in America that is struggling just to chug along. Partisanship is at what seems like an all-time high. Few majoritarian policies, policies that would combat things like climate change or increase the minimum wage, seem to be able to get enough votes in Congress. And, of course, our previous presidential election was almost overturned in a coup attempt. In a lot of ways, it seems we don't have a majority democracy anymore. Seven out of the last eight Republican presidents didn't win the popular vote. Seven of the last eight Republican uh, nominees for uh, president. The, the Senate skews in favor of smaller population states, and the House is gerrymandered in a lot of places. But while we have rarely had a majoritarian democracy, the one we have now still feels like it is slipping away. It feels to a lot of us like we're losing control of the country that we live in. And I say that not just about people who identify as progressives, but people who identify as conservatives. I talk to people all the time who say, my goodness, how can all of these things be happening? Two authors of a new book called The Paradox of Democracy suggest that, yes, our democracy may be slipping, but not just because it unfairly gives power to people over land. Rather, it may be slipping because our free and open society is too free and too open. They say that having an open communicative space is necessary for a democracy, but by having that, we leave ourselves open to bad actors who subvert the public by exploiting their worst impulses. Those actors will take advantage of our openness and turn our democracy into something else entirely, a place where authoritarianism, not political equality, is what endures. One of the authors of the book, Zach Gershberg, is here to talk with us today. Zach is an associate professor of journalism and media at Idaho State. He's also the co-author of this book, noting that new open media channels like the internet and social media today make democracies vulnerable to collapsing. In it, he writes that, quote, digital technology has changed everything. And consequently, reality is up for grabs in a way it has never been before. It's all pretty scary. And getting to a solution will definitely not be easy. To talk about it here with us today is Professor Zach Gershberg. Zach, welcome to Detroit Today. Stephen, thank you. I appreciate it. I'm glad to speak with you. Yeah. So we typically define democracies by having laws that protect our right to vote, our right to majority rule. And I think for a lot of people, the signs that the de democracy we live in is in peril uh, are about those rights, the right to vote, the right to majority rule. Why is that a wrong way to think about this or just not the whole picture 
on what democracy is. Well, Stephen, first let me say thank you. I thought your summary was actually better than uh, usually Sean and I can muster for the book. <laughs> and and so uh, I think that was great. It's also a, r- a really great, great question because what we're trying to do is shift our understanding of democracy uh, from uh, the from what we normally associate it with, the rule of law, certain institutions, and voting, not because those aren't important, they are incredibly important, but when we started researching and looking through the history of democracy from Athens to Rome to all these different societies, uh, the founding of the U.S., the French Revolution, um, you know, one thing we found was uh, you know, voting wasn't always central. What actually was central uh, was the sense of free expression, that citizens uh, exercising their voice. Now, who got to count as a citizen? Uh, that sort of evolved over, over time because there's one way to look at American democracy and to say, well, we didn't really have a democracy until the 1960s uh, with the, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Act. Um, and, and, and I cannot certainly under, understand that. So um, for us, understanding democracy is central to the voice of citizens, and that sometimes doesn't always, if you look through the history of it, one, it doesn't always mean exactly majorities get their way, but then the second thing is there are bad actors uh, who will try to use the system uh, to have permanent power with no accountability and uh, in, in try to win democracy once and for all. And I think that's what we saw over the last couple of years, what has been attempted and kind of what we're struggling against. And I think those struggles, uh, if you take the whole range of the history of democracy, isn't actually, uh, it, it's almost something that you would expect. Uh, and we've been shielded from that a little bit. So I, I want to push back just a little bit on, sure. on your your theory in a in a big picture way here. So the the communication you're talking about is of course this digital technology, the 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 vast spaces of social media and and other forms of communication that in the last five maybe ten years have really taken over the way at least in in politics and political discourse we we interact with each other. And I I, I have an observation that that I've made a couple of times about that. I mean, yes, social media is uh, something of an open public sewer in a lot of ways, right? I mean, there's just the, the most distasteful ideas flow really fast and to, and can reach really far uh, on them. But what makes that different from something like the telegram, which or the telegraph, which which you know is invented more than a century and a half ago, and is used to to great effect in the run up to the Civil War. In fact, spreading mm-hmm. disinformation, especially in the South, about uh, about the end of slavery, the, the the potential end of slavery. How is it different from radio or television, which, of course, in their infancies were also uh, they were mediums for 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 nonsense and, and <laughs> untruth uh, what what is it about social media i guess that that pulls it into a different category for you sure so so that's great and i love to talk about the telegraph so the telegraph is sort of this kind of birthplace of electronic media and from the telegraph to radio to television uh, and, and newspapers, right, all of these things are uh, forms of mass communication where you need to own a telegraph system or you need to own a printing press or have a television license or a radio station. And what's different about digital media, particularly social networking, is that every individual has access to the power of mass communication. So it's no longer that citizens and consumers just passively absorb information and and persuasive efforts. It's that uh, we can now create 
uh, and publish our own writing, our own uh, recordings. I mean, you as a radio host, you have a lot of competition now, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and and people can uh, not just post their, their thoughts, but also share the work of others and curate their own uh, information diets. So have it shifting that power of mass communication from a sort of elite pursuit to who owns a printing press or who has a television license to the ma- to the, the greater public that they have the ability uh, to disseminate, to create and disseminate. That is what has ultimately shifted that there's sort of this competition now uh, between mass communication and, and social and digital media uh, that is something that we just have not have not seen, mm. and so that I think some of the uh, the the, um, the the differences of the last ten to fifteen years reflect that change, and then it's almost like we're still in a period of transition there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so in that way, there's I guess another kind of paradox unfolding here. Um, the the idea that we have more control i guess over over the social media space and the the other ways of communication now is in some ways a good thing uh you know it it, it gives more people access and gives more people a platform uh but of course at the same time it you know it it makes it easier for people who who want to do you know uh, want to commit mischief? It, it makes it a lot easier to to, to spread it, right? Um, um, and so, is it the is it a reflection of the mediums themselves, or is it a reflection of us? I mean, that's one of the, the other question I always ask: Is this about social media or the technology that we that we have, or is this about where we are in the culture? right now, and this tool is highlighting the problems that we have. Oh, I think that's, that's a great way to put it. It is highlighting the problems, but it's also uh, something people always talk about in democracy. A lot of scholars will talk about responsibilities and virtues, but in the book, we tend to talk about opportunities, right? I mean, the one thing about citizens having access to uh, publishing or broadcasting on their own through digital media is they can organize and 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 uh, engage in activist uh, uh, work and sometimes you'll see uh, I mean uh, sometimes that has uh, great consequences for you know social justice movements but then on the other hand you have this uh, QAnon conspiracy that that alleges the craziest human trafficking stories uh, in in service of politics, and and so it's a it's about the opportunities that media per, and communication technologies provide, but then it's also as you point out a reflection of sort of who we are both uh, in really great ways, but also in the pathologies we will have in in, in such a society. So I, I want to talk a little more uh, about your your theories here in the book. Um, you say that democracies often falter when new open media are introduced. Uh, mm-hmm. Talk about other times when that's happened. Talk about the past democracies that have fallen because of, of new media. Sure. So just beginning in uh, ancient Greece when democracy first uh, began, one of the the new so uh, new technologies. I mean, in in terms of Athens, they developed, you know, kind of the more modern form of writing that we know today. They didn't have a printing press, they didn't have computers, but they had writing, which uh, and it was script based writing. But that put a lot of pressure on society. I mean, so if you look at the dialogues of Plato, like he's very concerned with people using rhetoric and people using writing. Uh, and that becomes this this great tension in society, and then you have these oligarchs take over. Uh, the Athenian assembly literally voted themselves out of existence and said, actually, we should just have you know these oligarch types take over. 
Uh, and then uh, what, one, one example I always think is, is kind of interesting in the French Revolution, uh, which, like the American Revolution, uh, sort of benefited from a system of pamphlets and one-off sort of newspapers that were able to be written. And, right, uh, in, in, the, in the American colonies, they fought against the British, and in the French Revolution, it was against the royalist sort of order. But once these countries sort of get their own independence and try to start a democracy, they then have these crazy newspaper wars. Uh, in France, they uh, end up killing one another, and then Napoleon comes in and takes over and says, well, I'm just going to take over these printing presses and create a system of propaganda bulletins. And that's how he ends up concentrating power in some ways uh, and, and, and snuffs out the sort of latent uh, democracy that was trying to take a foothold there. Mm. Uh, I'm talking with Zach Gershberg. He's an associate professor of journalism and media at Idaho State University and co-author of the book, The Paradox of Democracy, Free Speech, Open Media, and Perilous Persuasion. We're talking about the threats to our democracy, to our republic that we see all around us right now and that many of us feel pretty uh, anxious about the things that are going on in Washington right now with the January 6th hearings about the coup attempt after the last presidential election. Uh, I think all of us are taking a little more time to think about what the value of our democracy is, how strong it is, and whether it can resist so many of the attacks that uh, that we see it enduring. Uh, we want to hear from you during the conversation as well. Do you believe that our democracy is at this kind of critical inflection point? Do you believe that it's more vulnerable right now than it was, say, a few years ago? And if so, what do you think is causing that vulnerability? What do you think could protect us from losing it all together? Also, Give us a sense of what you think about the openness, the the freedom of platforms like social media and the role that they're playing in the threats to democracy. Uh, are they are these forms of communication uh, as much a threat as they are uh, a wonderful development of progress in the communicative sense? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag to trade today, and uh, we can work you into the conversation. Uh, before we go to our, uh, our listeners, um, I want to talk about what you think, um, what, what do you think can be done about this. Uh, one of the other things I talk about pretty frequently is the idea that, you know, social media is new. It's in its infancy. Uh, and it certainly has changed our way of communication dramatically in a short period of time. But what will it look like in 40 or 50 or 70 years? I mean, the potential that it has, I think, is so powerful that it's hard not to think that it will in some ways, grow up. It'll mature. Um, and maybe it'll mature as the culture matures or fixes what, uh, what, what's wrong with it. Um, I, I wonder what you make of that prospect and how we get to the space where these are less dangerous forms of communication. Ooh, that's, that's an exceedingly difficult question. Where are we going to be in 30 to 50 years? Uh, so, so there is one thing that does give me a little bit of hope, and it's, it's tough knowing, right, there's these terms like misinformation and disinformation. Uh, and, and one thing we do know, at least with social media, uh, as Facebook and its sort of early uh, types came about in around 2005, 2006, uh, and became popular, one... Um, you know, it was popular with, with younger generations, and it, and, it, and it was kind of interesting. Uh, the Obama campaign uh, actually tended to use social media much better than, say, uh, uh, his primary challengers and the Republicans in 2008 and 2012. And then by after 2012, something shifted where social media became more universally adopted, and that meant older voters 
who skewed maybe a little bit more conservative and were not uh, digital natives, as they say it. Uh, so it was a new communication frontier, and they really struggled, uh, or they were maybe susceptible uh, to certain uh, techniques. And uh, in, in I guess my, what I wonder in some ways, or what makes me hopeful, is like some of the strategies that have worked over the last decade, 10 to 15 years, as uh, is that society grows more used to digital communication is that the strategies might not be as uh, effective, possibly. Um, so so that's, that's something to, to, to look for, because I think certainly something changed, at least over the years of the Trump presidency, mm-hmm. um, where it wasn't necessarily mainstream misinformation, especially with the pandemic, you saw more of just isolated pockets. Now, those pockets were pretty expansive, you know, which which is a concern, uh, but at the same time, I don't, I didn't think you saw uh, as much. Uh, it, it was certainly different, and I think this is, uh, in some ways, global. Uh, whereas some of the strategies we see in terms of uh, the the foreign policy of Russia and, and some of these other effects um, aren't as successful when they're attempted. And so I think there's a continually dyna- a dynamic nature to media that that we don't know about that that gets to a place that we don't necessarily know about. Uh, looking ahead, I'm always sort of concerned at uh, AI and, and what does that mean? Mm-hmm. You know, our biggest problem sometimes is how we trick one another with propaganda and lies and stuff like that. But it's like, what if we introduce a new variable, a computer system? Uh, or an, an intelligence that learns how susceptible we as humans are uh, to, to false information and propaganda. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Zach Gershberg. We will get to you, the listeners, as well. Terry and Joel in Detroit, Anthony in Ann Arbor, Jimmy in Birmingham to be up first. We'll also get to some social media comments. If you want to join us, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phone. That's 313-577-1019, and you can go to social media talking about right now facebook and twitter put comments there and uh, we'll include you in the conversation we'll be right back with more detroit today bringing you news that matters stories that impact your life music from the motor city and around the world this is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Our guest is Zach Gershberg, he's an associate professor of journalism and media at Idaho State University and co-author of the book, The Paradox of Democracy, Free Speech, Open Media, and Perilous Persuasion. Uh, We're talking about the effect that this incredible age of mass communication has on our democratic institutions and our democracy itself. Uh, It makes it more open, but does it also make it more vulnerable? Uh, We want to hear from you during the conversation as well. What do you make of these tools that we use to communicate with each other so instantly and so frequently right now and what role they're playing in our politics and uh, our democracy. As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter or to Facebook, to social media, put comments there, and we can include you that way. Let's start today with Terry in Detroit. Terry, what's on your mind? Uh, yeah, yes, thank you, Stephen, for mm-hmm. uh, taking my call. Uh, very good show, by the way. Uh, listen, I was listening to uh, uh, to your, your guest, <clears throat> and you know, in our Constitution, at least in the Bill of Rights, anyway, a free press is ingrained, right? And so that's a right. But also with that right, it seems like it's a responsibility of the press that when there's mis- 
information or when there's lies, um, to point it out, a, a prime example would be um, our previous president um, just told Goo Gobs a lie. Mm-hmm. And the press would say that it was a lie, but they didn't come out with the coloring point of what that lie was. Just like uh, when he was saying that uh, he, uh, uh, white people were being pushed to the back of the line uh, during the COVID vaccine. That was a lie. And the press would say it's a lie, but they wouldn't point out the exact uh, reasons why it was like with a countering uh, point with the truth. Hmm. And Stephen, you used the perfect word um, just in this uh, brief introduction. You called uh, a tools. In the press, in a democracy, the press is a tool. It's a tool to inform the people, uh, the citizens of what's going on, information, and with uh, honest information. The best way to counter misinformation is with factual information. And just like we have a right to a free press, maybe the press should spend more time or just a little time in exercising their responsibility of feeding the people honest, factual information so we can make better choices and decisions based on factual information. The president has lied so much, and those (laughs) lies have been ingrained because no one has offered the people uh, a a countering Account sure. and, and excuse me for mm-hmm. uh, around me. It's okay, there. I'm trying to get it out. But anyway, thank you. I uh, yeah, I, I I really appreciate the call, and I, I I understand perfectly what you're what you're saying. I mean, I, I, before we go back to our guest, I just want to kind of point out that the you know the freedoms in the First Amendment, you know, there's there's five. Um, one is of the press, but but the other is also a free speech, and and I think there are, they are two separate freedoms but i agree with you that um you know that that all of the freedoms that are that are outlined in the constitution come inherently with some some responsibility it's very hard sometimes to talk about you know identifying that responsibility or enforcing that responsibility but i think one way to think of it is the reason that the press is given such uh, exalted status in the very First Amendment to the Constitution is the thought uh, that it it has a responsibility to inform and inform factually, um, and so no question that uh, you know we ought, we ought to be held to account for that. But but social media is protected by a different freedom, which is which is free speech, and that's a different kind of animal, and it's a very it's a much harder. Thing to define, but Zach Gershberg, I want to get your take on what uh, Terry's saying as well. Well, I definitely appreciated uh, the, the the caller what in in pointing out free the press clause, which I think is really important. I think for far too long, uh, the press clause has been seen as a redundancy of free speech. And Stephen, I really like how you just uh, distinguished them there. Uh, even our Supreme Court over the last decade has tried to collapse the distinction. Mm-hmm. Uh, but part of it, actually, I think one of the um, things, you know, kind of the early generation of founders actually sort of got right is they wanted to subsidize subsidize uh, the, the press to provide information uh, through, through uh, news, uh, smaller newspapers all around the country, and they uh, thought it really important to have the post office uh, you know, subsidized so people could have access to, to information. But, you know, the, the challenge there is these are ultimately responsibilities because of their legal protections that can't necessarily be enforced. So what the caller was bringing up, I think, is a, uh, a reflection of the tensions and contradictions that we're trying to <laughs> articulate in this book that we always... We, we should be doing, you know, X, Y, and Z, but sometimes it doesn't work out that way. And I think also the incentive structure for a lot of media uh, in terms of ownership and everything like that uh, can skew the priorities where sometimes it's not always for the good of the public or just informing them uh, honestly. And it's, 
And there's a lot of great stuff out there, but the scale of information is really challenging to to balance and sift through. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, Terry, really appreciate the call mm-hmm. and the really thoughtful questions. Um, let's go next to Joel in Detroit. Joel, welcome to the welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I, I think the uh, the professor's argument is, is really fascinating, and I, I, I'm curious to, to, yeah, possibly even even uh, yeah, check out his book. Um, but I, I do think that, as you alluded to earlier, Stephen, that uh, you know what we're looking at right now um, is in terms of social media and, and misinformation. Uh, conspiracy theories, uh, you know, that's, that's hardly without precedent in, in U.S. history. Mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, I think it's even possible to argue that that was the norm throughout most of the past uh, 250 years. Um, you know, just, just looking at Detroit, you know, back in the, back in the 30s, we had Father Coughlin, um, you know, first uh, preaching on the radio in favor of the New Deal and then against it and um, hmm. you know, then, you know, veering into, into, you know, straight up anti-Semitism. Uh, you know, you had Henry Ford subsidizing, you know, serializing the protocols of the elders of Zion and his, his newspaper. Uh, so, um, you know, I guess I, you know, un- unfortunately, um, you know, what we have now in terms of, of QAnon and so on, um, is, is not without precedent. Yeah. I think you also have to look at the role of major networks like Fox in popularizing furtherism. Uh, sure. And, you know, and quite honestly, at the role of, uh, of, of the major networks in um, things like, uh, you know, getting us into war in Iraq. Sure. Uh, so, yeah. uh, jo- yeah, Joel, I, I, just, um, I, 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 I agree with you a hundred percent that, that, um, you know, the history of media and communication in this country really is largely framed by efforts to mislead. And, and um, uh, you know, it's been in, in very narrow spaces where we've seen the predominance of a, a different idea. Um, Zach Gershberg, we, we talked about this earlier, and you made some distinctions uh, between those those times and those mediums and social media, which is, I mean, it's it's an iterative difference, I think, when you're talking about something that people can control from, you know, their the phone in their pocket and and reach the world in an instant. Um, but 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 I but I think Joel's right that you know the instinct that we're seeing exercised there is really old and and maybe as old as the republic itself. Sure, and and this is our our whole point about democracy is it's often it's it's a struggle over communication, and sometimes as you put it, those those tools of communication. So we see figures uh, like the the caller mentioned, Father Coughlin, who came about and learned to really understand how to use radio and then use uh, his newsletter uh, to uh, command the space. And even a hundred years before that, Samuel Morse, who created uh, what we know as, as the telegraph mm-hmm. uh, before the 1840s and, and his uh, development of Morse code, Samuel Morse actually wrote under a pseudonym uh, in, in a newspaper and published a book that was this terrible nativist tract that was against Catholics uh, and, and popery. And he was a he was a real conspiracy theorist, <laughs> and 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 then he ends up creating this technology <laughs> and right. you know uh, uh, telegraphing what what hath God wrought. I mean, and it ends up being uh, you know a force for uh, informing the, the 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 public, and 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 so there's always these strange elements that we see. But the struggle, I mean, I think in terms of when you think about President Trump or Donald Trump, we think of, you know, only the last five years and all the conflagrations that have taken place there. But part of it in the 80s, he understood tabloid newspapers, uh, even calling in as his own PR agent under a pseudonym 
in, you know, he had the reality television show on NBC, and then he was an early adopter of Twitter and social media and led the birtherism charge. And this is all before he ever even ran for president. So it's figuring out how to use media in different ways and different communication technologies to your advantage. And, and, and that's kind of the, the location of where the richness of democracy can take place, but also obviously some of those problems <laughs> that, that we're not in short, uh, uh, we're not short of. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's go next to Richard in Richmond, Michigan. Richard, welcome to the show. Yes, uh, thank you for having me. Mm-hmm. I think uh, listening to your debate here or your discussion that there are points bigger than what you're covering that are being missed. And I'm almost 75. So when I went to school 60 years ago, we had courses in civics and government and were taught how democracy works and that there are winners and losers. And we came to expect that and how it happened. But that all moved into a society where everybody gets a participation medal, whether you're winning or not. And now when you have losers, not getting their participation matter, what, what's in it for me? So I think it goes back to a deeper state. We had radio and television and false advertising too, but we were able to uh, kind of get through all that because we had the government classes and we had programs where you had winners and losers and not everybody gets the participation medal. Hmm. <laughs> Richard, I really appreciate <laughs> the call and and those thoughts. Uh, in some ways, I think you're saying, "Look, uh, we aren't we aren't educating people anymore well enough to be able to make these kinds of critical decisions." Given all the 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 information out there, Zach, what do you make of that idea? Well, I you know, I'm really glad that the caller was able to share that perspective. And I think uh, we, we take pains in the book to show that over the last half of the 20th century, uh, there was kind of this, this sort of structure or cultural feeling of uh, we, what we call the age of liberal democracy. With TV, radio, newspapers, magazines, there was a sense where there was a, a certain expectation uh, of how legislation got made or how in, in politics, how the discourse was in some ways narrowed. And, and, and in some ways, what we've seen in the 21st century is those norms have, have essentially broken. And so one of the things we, we say in the book is, uh, because we hear quite a bit, well, let's, let's just have more civics uh, training. And our response to that is like, well, if people, if, if one side, if it's asymmetrical and they keep exploiting, um, you know, the other side's need for norms and civics and everything like that, then there's, there's not, that, that won't be an effective strategy to combat some of those dangers within. Um, but I, I think the real question is, uh, is there a normal which we can go back to culturally in I'm not necessarily convinced that that's the case. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Zach Gershberg. Uh, We'll continue with you on the phones as well. Tom in Waterford, Jimmy in Birmingham, Anthony in Ann Arbor. Hang on. We will get to you. There's also some social media comments that we want to add to the conversation. If you want to join us, 313-577-1019 is the number here. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Our guest is Zach Gershberg. He is a professor of journalism and media at Idaho State University and co-author of the book, The Paradox of Democracy, Free Speech, Open Media, and Perilous Persuasion. We're talking about uh, the way that the vast openness of social media is 
helping to tear down some of our democratic institutions, helping to threaten some of our democracy. I want to hear from you during the conversation as well. What do you make of the threats to democratic institutions, uh, to our republic more generally? Uh, and what role you think communication and these platforms and tools that we have, uh, that we have incredible control over, um, what role are they playing in all of that? 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and uh, we'll work into the conversation. Before we get back to our listeners, Zach, I do want to talk about uh, the January 6th commission mm -hmm. and the stunning revelations that uh, are coming out of those those hearings um this seems to 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 confirm for a lot of us i think the threats that do exist and getting back to the themes in your book the way that our methods and tools of communication are playing a role there's so much about what these these witnesses are testifying about that gets to uh, this very um, this very notion of how easy it is to spread misinformation, um, not just on that day, but of course in the, the the run up to that day. That's what gets us to the place where people are storming into the Capitol. Right. Yeah. I mean, they were worked up into a lather over the course of a couple months, and I don't think that it is any, it is not a coincidence uh, that the, the two instances where the American government almost just dissolved completely, uh, one was, uh, you know, in the lead up to the Civil War, I, th I think we sometimes forget how important the election of Abraham Lincoln was in mm -hmm. 1860, mm -hmm. that it was during the transition that newspapers in the South, in Charleston in particular, were lobbying for uh, 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 these states to secede from the U.S. government, and they did so. By the time Lincoln gives his first inaugural, most of the states had, in the South had left. And, and so it's a really vulnerable time, this transition. And part of it is because people want to get their way, and when they don't get their way, they'll use their power and privilege to, you know, throw a fit to try to um, sustain that power. And I think that's what we saw here. Um, you know, and it's, for me, I, I think it's so important to have this forensic record that's being established. Uh, but it's also really surprising that this is kind of 18 months later and we're uh, having witnesses who are, who are confirming what we saw on January 6, 2021, that uh, this rally was planned and promoted, uh, and then a speech was delivered that that riled them up, and the people went to try to overthrow the government. <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. and and so I I am curious where all this is headed. You know, if it's a criminal referral, or if this is just to establish a, a forensic record. And so I think it's actually pretty important that this committee, however they finish up, are able to communicate clearly uh, what their priorities are, uh, because establishing a forensic record isn't going to be something that is going to ultimately protect democracy as healthy as it is to have it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, 313 577 1019 is the number here on the phones. Uh, let's next go to Tom in Waterford. Tom, welcome to the show. Hi, Stephen. Hey. Hi, Zach. Um, you know, as, as I hear you guys talking, I keep thinking about Ronald Reagan and his removal of the, uh, the Fairness Doctrine and the rise of uh, talk radio with people like Rush Limbaugh and, uh, and the like and Rupert, Rupert, Mead, uh, Rupert Murdoch's media. Uh, taking hold in the United States with Fox News and all, and uh, and what what effect do you think that's had on uh, on uh, this this whole situation we're dealing with today? Mm. Uh, great question. Um, go ahead, Zach. Sure. Uh, well, uh, I live here in Southeast Idaho in the city of Pocatello, uh, and uh, we have three con 
conservative radio news talk stations. Uh, and, and so I think that, that we often forget about radio. I'm glad to be on a radio program today as a guest. Uh, I think radio is actually highly influential. It's what Marshall McLuhan called a hot medium, <laughs> uh, you know, because of all that acoustic space here. And, and, and so I think actually that was a really important, the rise of quote unquote conservative news talk station with, uh, eliminating the fairness doctrine, the rise of cable television news mm-hmm. and having, uh, I think that was how we got to a very polarized and partisan space. Uh, so we talked earlier in the program a lot about social and digital media, how that's responsible for a lot of our problems. But in some ways, the polarization issue that we've been facing over the last couple of decades, that is a direct reflection on I, I, I think the relaxing of certain rules uh, related uh, to radio and television uh, that allowed for more partisan polarized spaces. Yeah, yeah. Uh, great question, Tom. I really appreciate uh, the call. Let's go next to Jimmy in Birmingham. Jimmy, welcome to the show. Hey, Stephen. Good to talk to you again. Uh-huh. Um, so this is reminding me of something that actually you and I talked about on a previous uh, conversation around where truth comes from. And I, w- I, I kind of uh, talked about my family a little bit and just how our foundations of, of the truth come mm-hmm. from different places. And therefore, because we have uh, a, ver- a vast difference in where truth comes from, we're just never going to be at a place where we can have even a constructive conversation about very important topics. So this leads me to a theory around social media that I feel uh, does us no favors as it relates to what is true. And what is true is our story. And I think social media has done a disservice to us as humans and our ability, or maybe even lack of vulnerability to tell our story. Mm. Social media, I got off that. I got off every platform. I was tired of, of these posts that are 99.9% about good things, positive things, happy things. Um, No one really having the courage to be vulnerable and to share things that they would love support about things they're struggling with. And so, again, trying to tie this in a nice bow for you guys to to dissect. How how do we focus less on truths that none of us can really control? I can't control the truth that my family subscribes to, nor can they mine. But my story is something that I, I can hold as my truth, yet we don't focus on our ability to tell our stories enough. Uh, and social media has done us, I think, a disservice in that regard. Hmm. So I'll uh, leave it there. Yeah. Jimmy, really appreciate the call. And, and I do remember that conversation we had about uh, the, the struggles you have been having members of your family. Uh, Zach Kirschberg, uh, I think this is a pretty, you know, a pretty common dilemma in, in our society is, uh, you know, how do we identify truth? How do we get others to to use truth as their guide when they're making decisions and, and having these discussions? Yes. And it's, and it's, a, it's, and that is a hard, challenging question. And, uh, because, right, you, you could hear in the caller's voice, there's a certain intimacy to truth that we share uh, in our own spaces or with our families or uh, with our uh, close-knit communities, uh, and yet we're trying to project that on to a society uh, as, at, at large. Um, and there, there's been a lot of concern lately about how we're living in a post-truth era, uh, and, and my co-author, Sean Illing, and I sort of push back against this a little bit in, in, in saying that in, in terms of democracy itself and when we're talking about politics, in, in some ways we're, we're setting our expectations up uh, is, as, as a little bit of a trap if we're expecting, um, you know, politicians uh, to deliver us with truth. And I think it's almost... Uh, refreshing to say, okay, when I think about these big questions of truth and everything like that, this is something uh, for for me and those close to me is something I can uh, focus on 
But I can understand that when we're dealing with facts, they can often be provisional and public information is somewhat, um, uh, you know, provisional. Uh, and, 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 and so that's, that's kind of, I mean, going back to the uh, early democracies of the Athenian experiment, they had this uh, term doxa, which meant public knowledge. Mm-hmm. And they understood that it was different uh, than truth with a capital T. So I think that's actually a helpful mindset uh, to adopt. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Zach Gershberg, uh, it was really wonderful to have you here with us to talk about uh, these ideas of openness and democracy. And congratulations on your book, The Paradox of Democracy, Free Speech, Open Media, and Perilous Persuasion. Thanks for being with us. Stephen, thank you. You and your callers are really terrific. This has been a real treat. Yeah, this has been really great. Okay, that's going to do it for us today. Tune in tomorrow when we're going to talk about the hottest congressional race in Detroit, the 13th congressional district race. A new poll out today talks about who's in the lead and who's trailing. We'll get all of it unpacked here on the show. We'll also talk about those campaigning for the seat, who's in the lead, and why that race is so sought after. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.